The truly remarkable thing about the work of William Shakespeare is that even 450 years later, he seems to have something relevant to say about almost everything human beings do. So you might be wondering, what could he possibly have to say in 2020 about our current moment of reckoning around race in America? As it turns out, quite a lot. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. For those of you listening who aren't steeped in the world of academia, here's a term you may not have heard before, critical race theory. What it is, to put it succinctly, is a way of looking at society and culture that always keeps in mind the interplay of race, law, and power. Ever since George Floyd's killing by a police officer in Minneapolis outraged much of the nation, critical race theory has garnered new attention. Today, millions of Americans are looking at race, law, and power with new eyes, while millions of other Americans, pointing to the reality of their own day-to-day lives, are basically saying, I told you so. For quite some time now, Dr. David Sterling Brown, an assistant professor of English, general literature, and rhetoric, has been doing everything he can to make sure that his students at Binghamton University apply critical race theory to Shakespeare. Recently, David was one of the speakers at a Folger Institute event called Critical Race Conversations, The Sound of Whiteness, or Teaching Shakespeare's Other Race Plays in Five Acts, where he took that perspective outside the classroom. In this podcast, he brings these ideas to the rest of us. We invited David in, well, actually he's speaking from his home, to offer us a critical race reading of one Shakespeare play, Titus Andronicus. And if you're saying to yourself, okay, what on earth could there possibly be about Titus Andronicus that has anything to do with Black Lives Matter? Keep listening. We call this podcast, Coal Black is Better Than Another Hue. Dr. David Sterling Brown is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. David, how do you start a class or a talk um, or a seminar, whatever, these days about Titus Andronicus? Uh, do you just come right out and say something like, we're going to talk about how this play directly relates to what the Black Lives Matter protests are all about? That's a great question. No, so what I do, I don't really even preface it that way. I always start my classes with a seminar style, and the topic is usually race. So they already have an awareness of that, but I like to let them get into the play and really figure out what's going on at first. So you immerse into the play. Great, Let because let's do that. And I think a lot of Shakespeare fans haven't seen or read Titus Andronicus. It's just not that well known. So to start us off, could you perhaps give us just thumbnail descriptions of the three or four characters in the in the portions of the play that we're going to talk about? Uh, for instance, who is Aaron the Moor and who is Tamara and who is Lucius? 
Sure. So Aaron the Moor is a prisoner of war who comes in with Tamara, who is a goth. She's a white character who is um, ethnically different than the Romans, but she's able to assimilate into Rome because of her whiteness. And Aaron is her lover, uh, her illicit lover, I should add. And Lucius is uh, the son of Titus Andronicus, who is the play's protagonist. He's a Roman general and the patriarch of this family known as the Andronici. That's great. And already you've thrown us into this world that right off the bat is dealing with issues of otherness. Goth, white, black. Also, there's a a love triangle. Actually, you should tell us more. Tell us more about the love triangle in case (laughs) Yes, of course. So the love triangle, it's one of the sort of high points of the play because of what happens later in Act 4, Scene 2, when this black baby of Tamara's emerges. Um, Tamara, as Queen of Goths, marries the Roman Emperor Saturninus, and so having sexual intercourse with Aaron produces this black baby that then once we get to Act 4, Scene 2, the play, Shakespeare, the audience, everyone, the characters involved have to figure out what do we do with this baby? It's complicated. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we have otherness and we have interracial mixing and racial stereotypes involving sexuality and violence. All of that comes into play. And of course, issues of women and attitudes towards women. Uh, And as you say, racial profiling. And why don't we start there? What do we learn from Titus about profiling? So we learn a lot from Titus about profiling. In particular, there are these stereotypes that revolve around people's ideas about what is blackness, what is whiteness, etc. And we have this black character, Aaron, who is pretty much any negative stereotype you can think of that, you know, relates to the black identity, he embodies it. So we're talking about hypersexuality is embedded in his character, evil is embedded in his character, violence, of course, is embedded in his character. He even talks at one point about how blood and revenge are hammering in his brain. So uh, he is you know, a sensational figure when it comes to thinking about the representation of both stereotypes and also how the black male identity in particular becomes this thing that people seem to just automatically fear, both in the play but even in our modern world as we're seeing right now with police responses to black men and boys, for instance. Yeah, you know, you you watch this play and you think, Aaron, he's just so wicked. He's like pure evil. But all of these other things are coming into play. And I was thinking in terms of the adjective performative and and code switching, the the performances that someone of color uh, either, you know, acts to a certain way to assimilate into into a culture. Um, But I think you might mean that and other things. And I'm thinking of a quote, too, from your work that is that racial profiling is a performance of how the black person appears through the dominant gaze. So so could you explain that and how, how it illuminates this play? Black people don't get to control our identities in particular. And so when I think about the dominant gaze, um, essentially, at any given moment, how a black person is perceived by, you know, the dominant culture, the dominant white culture, can determine what that black person's identity 
you know, how it registers in the world, for instance. Um, so when I think about Tamir Rice, the teenage kid who was killed by police holding a toy gun, his identity in that moment, how it registered to police as just black individual with gun threatening, all of that stuff happens very quickly because these types of um, ideas and even ideologies about blackness have been ingrained in society. And is this how you've always looked at this play? That it's it's got this meta level of uh, a, the play as a performance and it's dealing with performativeness and race? Or is this something that's evolved for you? My quick answer to that is not at all. Um, it's definitely, you know, evolved. I was introduced to Titus Andronicus as an undergraduate at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut in about 2001. And then, you know, my professor, Mila Riggio, she mentioned this moment in Titus where Aaron has this line. He says, coal black is better than another hue and that it scorns to bear another hue. And she mentioned it as a moment of black power um, and not in the 1960s black power movement sense per se, but she was doing something so extraordinary for me as the only black student in the class at the time with connecting the past and the present. And so that was my inroad into Titus. But uh, these ideas evolve and that whole process of having to think through what does it mean to be Aaron and Titus? Is he purely evil? Uh, is he purely a criminal, as some scholars have identified him in their scholarship? And as a black man myself, uh, something about that didn't sit right with me, but it just took me a very long time to figure out why. Hmm. It really changes the play for me. I mean, usually I've watched this play and read it and identified with Lavinia, who we haven't talked about, but the character who was mm -hmm. raped and then her hands are cut off and her tongue cut out so that she can't speak of it or implicate anyone or write about them. But then, I mean, really, in this context, if you're white, you are completely implicated in all of these power relationships and all of this profiling and, and all of this ways of seeing the other. That's that's absolutely right. And I am so glad that you brought up Lavinia, because speaking of the evolution of my ideas about the play, you know, Lavinia, Titus's daughter who and Lucius's sister, who is, as you said, raped and mutilated in the play by Tamara's two goth sons, Kyrid and Demetrius. I bought into for a long time the idea that Lavinia is the most tragic figure uh, in Titus. And of course, you know, when we think about just the heinousness of sexual assault, and it's something that I also use as a point to educate students on my college campus um, about this important social matter. But Lavinia's rape and mutilation are only part of the tragic uh, nature of Titus in terms of the extreme violence. It's physical violence that we see with her situation. Whereas when we get to later in the play and Aaron's baby is essentially threatened by Lucius. Uh, Lucius wants to hang this black baby. Uh, I have to see both the tragedy that could be in what Lucius suggests and also just, again, the heinousness of the suggestion that we would hang the most innocent figure in this play. Um, and so power relations, to bring up the term you just mentioned, they really are at work when we think about responses to 
Lavinia versus responses to the baby versus responses to Aaron. Um, and that's, I think, also part of the work that Dominant Gaze does. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of your presentation about this play. Here, this is 400-year-old work, and there's a lynching in it. Not only a lynching, a, a double lynching, a lynching of a baby, too. And when you do your lecture on this material, you use an image of a noose hanging from a tree as you're talking about it. It's just so yes. resonant. It, it is. Um, and, uh, you know, I borrowed that idea from Julie Taymor's 1999 film adaptation um, within Shakespeare's play. So there's the suggestion of lynching. You know, Lucius wants to hang the baby from a tree and by his side, his fruit of bastardy, he says, of Aaron. And he wants the father to watch this. And so the idea that we can sit with a play 400 plus years later and think about the idea of lynching or a black man and a black boy is too resonant. That can evoke senses of trauma, both the racial trauma that comes with the black existence, um, but also the tragedy that we see with the black existence. I want to go back to what you were talking about with Tamir Rice and this idea of profiling and seeing Aaron as a monolith, really as kind of every black boy, you know, every black teenager in a hoodie out for a jog is a mm-hmm. thief on the run, like Ahmaud uh, Arbery in Georgia. Yes. So that's a fabulous question. Uh, I see that again through Lucius's language, um, first and foremost. His rationale for wanting to hang the child, part of it comes from his seeing the child and thinking of the child as being too like the sire forever being good. And, you know, with that line, he's essentially saying that this black baby is too much like the black father, Aaron, and therefore he too is bad, which is just, you know, there's the logic of racism right there for you. And Yeah, and there's another telling moment uh, that speaks to this constant and instant objectification. And that's the scene where where Marcus kills a fly at the dinner table. First off, tell us, remind us, who is Marcus? Uh, So Marcus is Titus's brother. Um, And so this dinner scene in in Act 3, Scene 2, it's this moment where, you know, Titus has reached his turning point in the play and has decided that he has no more tears to shed and um, he wants to enact revenge on behalf of his family because several of his children have been killed, et cetera, et cetera. And then we've got, of course, Lavinia. And um, a fly, a black fly enters, a black ill-favored fly enters the, the scene Marcus strikes at the fly with his knife and immediately Titus has a histrionic response because, you know, Titus is thinking and he even says, how if that fly had a father and mother? And so there's this idea in Titus's mind that the fly is somehow linked to Titus's, it reminds him of his own familial trauma. But once Marcus says that he kills the fly because the fly was black, like the Empress's more, referring to Tamara's lover, Aaron. There's, again, another switch in Titus's mindset, and he immediately wants to inflict more violence on this already dead fly, um, and he starts striking at it with his knife. Yeah, he goes kind of nuts. And I always thought this was a really interesting (laughs) scene because (laughs) Titus is so eloquent talking, especially about responding to Lavinia and her pain. Yes. It's one of the most moving 
parts of the play. And then we get this fly thing going on, and I always read it as revenge and jealousy. And now I'm questioning my... I'm questioning my white privilege here that I'm I am not seeing I am not seeing it in this in this way. That's an important point to to think about how this play can and this moment really make people question white privilege, white supremacy and even think about let's racialize Titus's white pain and his white suffering. Um that's all incredibly important and he switches from thinking about his white pain and white suffering, but also keeps it in mind, even as he makes this conversion to want use excessive force, essentially, with this already dead fly. Um, that's also what's motivating this racist response to the black fly that becomes this symbol for Aaron and even for Tamara as well. Okay, now this is a slippery question, and maybe I'm not asking it right, but... What's Shakespeare up to with his imagery, his blackness imagery in this scene in particular? And and I guess the larger question is, when you do this kind of analysis, are you figuring in both how theatergoers in Shakespeare's time and Shakespeare himself understood interracial relationships and, and race and whether that's even relevant in talking about this play? So it is definitely relevant, and I think there are different levels at which one can talk about the play. You know, a theater audience is not the same as my classroom audience, which is not the same as my conference audience. And so the ways that we choose to talk about these plays matter. But, um, you know, Kim Hall in her book, Things of Darkness, talks about tropes of blackness, for instance, that have both modern and pre-modern applicability and no one is uh, making these things up when we look at the play and think about what's going on with respect to blackness and all of its different meanings. Shakespeare put it there for us and he's making use of these tropes and so that fly is doing allegorical metaphorical work um, both backwards and forwards in the play to make us think at first about Titus's white family, but then switching us in the climax to think about and really internalize anti-black sentiments. I, I'm thinking back to when we had Ian Smith on this podcast, and he <laughs> he addressed this old argument that race wasn't a consideration in early modern England. Do you run up against that? I do, um, and my colleagues do as well, and, and quite frankly, we're tired of running up against that. <laughs> um, but... Because it's not a it's not a real serious question or inquiry at this point when so much research has been done um, to show otherwise, particularly in thinking about race, um, as Kim Hall does in Things of Darkness and others do, as a form of power. Um, and it's about power relations and how those hierarchies play out with respect to how people look, so skin color, skin difference. Additionally, um, I have to mention this really great book. Imtiaz Habib uh, published Black Lives in the English Archives, uh, Imprints of the Invisible, in 2008. And this book is both profound in terms of the depth of research that he did to uncover um, a history of blackness in early modern England, but it's also significant because of the way that it 
moves forward as work has done by scholars like Ian Smith, you just mentioned, as well as Arthur Little and Ayanna Thompson, it moves forward this real conversation about race in the early modern period and how it matters. Well, yeah, I never really understood it because just looking at the historical context, you have Titus Andronicus is written some time between 1589 and 1592, and that's that's already about 25 years after English slave ships started uh, the the trade. I mean, the xenophobia, it, it's already happening at that time. And the laws th- that the Crown were putting in place to keep blackamoors out, th- these were Correct. in people's minds. And they would presumably be in the minds of theater goers as they went to the Globe to see a Shakespeare play. Yes. And, um, you know, one time I heard, and uh, I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but, you know, someone said something along the lines of, Perhaps there wasn't necessarily a name for pneumonia, you know, in the early modern period, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist. Um, and I think that's also relevant to the race conversation. Speaking of back to the dominant gaze and power relations um, from the beginning of our conversation, what do people who study Shakespeare want to see? What don't they want to see? That matters. And that is in part the driving force for uh, these denials of the existence of race. Because what does it mean to race Shakespeare, for instance, even though Shakespeare obviously raced his work himself. uh, It's there, and not just in plays like Titus Andronicus, but really all of Shakespeare's plays. And of course, that legacy of slavery, the slave trade, it came to America just 25 years later in 1619, and we inherited all of this. It was relevant then, it's relevant now. But but do you still get students when you talk about this play uh, say something like, well, look, they were just more prejudiced back then. So so what can we learn from these old plays about what's going on now? <laughs> I love that. Yes, I do get that. And, and when I get that in the classroom, it's a great teaching opportunity um, for us to, one, you know, push back a little. And, you know, what's your evidence for... Um, saying that people were more prejudiced then and what metrics are being used to make that argument. Um, This is where, again, looking at a play like Titus or Othello, because of the way that they center anti-blackness, is very useful. And also getting students to think about colonialism and enslavement, as you mentioned, and racism. It's important for them to see that Things may look different now, but to say that matters were more one way than another, it's a bit of a stretch. Well, for theaters trying then to do better and present Shakespeare in a way that addresses what's happening in this moment, anti-racist Shakespeare, uh, and I'm not just talking about Shakespeare's so-called race plays like Othello, Mm -hmm. what do they need to do that goes beyond the obvious, I guess, diversity in casting and the like. They need to do a lot. And so the anti-racist work is a full-time job. So there's no quick fix to 
managing how to integrate conversations about race and racism into theater production, for instance, but it needs to happen and it needs to happen regularly. It's much like building a muscle. You keep doing it and you get stronger and stronger. And so I think engagement with scholars um, like myself, my colleagues, is a certainly a good step. Reading, of course, is another great step, both the literary criticism that scholars offer, pre-modern critical race studies offer, uh, scholars offer, but also um, just reading anti-racist work and maintaining anti-racist practices. Because as you said, diversifying a cast, for instance, or diversifying the production staff, that only can do so much if everyone's mindsets are not in the right place. It really requires a systemic overhaul that is possible. You know, this, this is not impossible, but it does require a lot of work, as I, I have to repeat that. That's making me um, think of something that Kenny Leon, the director, said a while back when he was talking about um, his production of Midsummer that he directed in Central Park. And he was on our podcast, and he he. he t- we were talking about how he infused that play with so much African and African-American culture and, and dance and gesture and uh, costuming, everything. Um, but he said that even he felt he didn't have permission to do all that until he sat down with this very eminent Shakespeare scholar, James Shapiro. And talking with him, he, he started to believe that if Shakespeare were alive today, he would have loved black people because he loved popular culture. That's what Kenny Leon's realization was. And it gave him this um, permission to, to, mm. to do what he did. It, he, he, felt he, he still felt he needed permission. Is this still a problem in theater? That even when people try and do the right thing and you diversify your cast and your directors and everyone, your crew, even when they make it into the sanctum, people don't feel they have permission to, to realize realize their vision on race. Yeah, and, you know, I think that the idea of permission, gosh, this is such a, a big question, um, because permission, whose permission are we seeking, for instance, to do what we need to do? But also, this reminds me of uh, color-conscious casting. As much as um, theater directors are grappling with the things they can and cannot do, um, they're also thinking about their audiences, right? As as Shakespeare did, you know, he thought about his audience. Uh, Aaron doesn't become the king or the emperor in Titus Andronicus. Not sure an early modern audience would have gone for that. Um, so there is this policing of the self. And so I think, you know, what Kenny Leone was really getting at um, is this idea that we have to appeal to the desires of um, the theater audience and we have to appeal to the desires of the dominant culture. And I mentioned color-conscious casting because there's often pushback still about choices that directors make to cast, for instance, a black Juliet or, you know, a, a black Hamlet, for instance. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about a Broadway production that featured uh, Condola Rashad as Juliet. And there was a lot of flack that they received for that. And, and the reviews were great, but people were just not happy that there was a black Juliet. It's, it, well, I mean, 
whatever frustration I may feel, it's a million times more for, for you. I can only imagine. I'm thinking that this is a different question on a different tack, but mm-hmm. almost all of the guests that we've had on this podcast at some point say something like, Shakespeare comes at things from so many sides and ang- angles that you can never know what he personally believed. You can only bring to it what you have. But I am curious if you have any sense of Shakespeare's attitudes towards race, having thought about it so much. So I like to think about it in terms of what Shakespeare gives us. Again, if we look at the language in Titus Andronicus, there's just these powerful moments where as much as the play might be expressing anti-racist sentiments, it also expresses racist sentiments and therein lies the tension that it's dramatizing for us. I think that's one of the greater things about Shakespeare's work is that we can look at it from different angles and if we we shift the optic, we can see this perspective, we shift it again, we can see that perspective. It's so... uh, I mean, of course you can try, but it's... You see such a difference when you have say, a director like Kenny Leon directing Shakespeare, then, I don't know, you can look back to a million other Shakespeare's, like Shakespeare in the Park, uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona in 1971, or King Lear with James Earl Jones in 1974. And these are both productions that were directed by white men. And it's just uh, exponential the difference between a white Shakespeare director who who does get some education in black culture and does try and is thinking this way, what you're describing, and a and a black director. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, for someone who grows up and into um, their blackness, they've certainly got a head start <laughs> on um, a white director who just hasn't had that experience. So I think experience is part of it, but also to the education component and directors really need to take those steps to educate themselves because the theater is a cultural tool as much as like movies are important. And, and the theater is an incredible apparatus that can be used in many different ways, and I love to see it when theater is used for good. You mentioned Anna Thompson a couple of times, and we've had her on the podcast a couple of times talking about yes, various I- things. Uh, one time she was on talking about Peter Sellers, the director, after she published his biography. But when she was there, she did say, you know, I'm used to being invited to productions of Othello because as a black Shakespeare scholar, that's the sort of cross we have to bear. I don't get invited to a lot of Hamlets. <laughs> 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 and that that's just, I mean, that just raises a lot of these issues you've already mentioned. I mean, but really, the question is, what's the best way for white or people not of color, Shakespeare people, to not to not pigeonhole, period. I think Without that, dragon you know, out here every, every, right. Every <laughs> or you for Pretty that much. matter. I mean, I, am I pulling an Ayana on, on you right now? You know, I like I that, like pulling an Ayana. another white person asking you, a black academic, how to be less racist. I'm going to quote that, pulling an Ayana. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, on a, on a serious note, yes, I think 
hear and totally, totally um, feel what uh, Ayana was saying there. And I think to your question, directors do need to recognize that scholars of color, Black academics in particular, have much more to say than just their thoughts on race and blackness. We have scholars who have written on religion. Um, we have scholars who have written on rhetoric. Um, and here I'm thinking of Dennis Britton and Ian Smith. We have scholars who've written on conduct literature in the period. I'm thinking of Patricia Akimi. So the opportunities can come if people open up their minds. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Hamlet um, because I recently was asked to do an introduction for Rob Miles's The Show Must Go Online series. And I told the person who asked me, Ben Crystal, I said, I want to do Hamlet. Uh, I'm, I don't want to do Othello. I don't want to... Well, they had already done Titus Andronicus because they're doing it in order. But I want to do Hamlet. I have things to say about Hamlet, too. Directors can call on people, um, you know, people like you can call on scholars as well to share their expertise beyond the quote-unquote race plays. And that's something that I'm trying to push in my work, piggybacking on work that others have done, to get people to see that race is everywhere. It's, it's all over Shakespeare, so pick a play and just start talking about race. Well, I would love to go to a play with you sometime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be that would be fun. I love seeing plays. <laughs> and at any and and even if we don't get to do that anytime soon, thank you so much for talking today and coming on the podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. Really appreciated this. Dr. David Sterling Brown is an assistant professor of English, general literature, and rhetoric at Binghamton University State University of New York. You can find more of his thoughts on the relevance of Titus Andronicus in a number of books and academic journals. Is Black So Base a Hue? Black Life Matters in Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, a chapter in the anthology Early Modern Black Diaspora Studies, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018, Remixing the Family, which appeared in Titus Andronicus, The State of Play, published by the Arden Shakespeare in 2019, and The Sonic Color Line, Shakespeare and the Canonization of Sexual Violence Against Black Men, published in the August 16, 2019 edition of The Sundial. He's currently finalizing his book project called Black Domestic Matters in Shakespearean Drama. Dr. Brown was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Coal Black is Better Than Another Hue, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. I ask this on every podcast, but please do us a favor. Please rate and review Shakespeare Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.